The scripture this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All right, hello. My name is Tommy. Um, there's the scripture. There it is. All right, next. Um, oh, can I get a little bit of let there be light? Yeah? All right. Siri, turn on the lights. Um, so uh, this is our passage today. Um, there's been a lot, of, a lot of different subjects in this book. By the way, uh, we're finishing this book next week. Um, yeah, we did it. We, yeah, yes. Um, but then we start like Second Peter, so it's, we're just going to keep rolling. Um, and uh, so there's been a lot of discussion. I love this book because the audience that was to receive this letter was wrapped up in so much terrifying business. There was just persecution raining down upon them. It was, it was coming full force at them, and they were, it was a really rough time to be a Christian. And in the midst of all of this, Peter writes them a letter and talks to them about joyous living and about grace and about mercy and about avoiding temptation and, and about um, living from the Spirit, not from the flesh. Um, it's almost like he's, he's, just, he's letting them know you can live this really good life even in the midst of really bad times. And so now he gets to this conversation on um, temptation. And he wants to talk to them. He's been talking to them about, at the very beginning of this book, was there's how there's three parts to every person, the body, the mind, and the spirit. And he's been coaxing them to say, hey, here's how you live by the spirit. Here's how you live by the spirit. And by the way, there is an enemy. Um, and so we're going to pray, and we're going to talk about what he's talking about here. Um, and uh, yeah, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, thank you that, that, first off, that I get to do this, that I get to stand here and talk to these people about you. Um, I ask that you would make my, uh, my thoughts clear and bring back to my memory the things that I've studied and prepared for this week. I, um, I ask that um, we would all be very present, very here this morning, that our minds would not be wandering to other places, other things that have been distracting us. And um, I ask that you would help us to lay aside our burdens and our stresses just for now so that we can receive your wisdom before we pick them back up again and head out these doors. Um, thank you that we get to come and set aside a time where we can proclaim that there is a God who wants things to be fixed, to be made whole again, who wants to bring salvation to all these different parts of our lives um, and we can stand here and affirm love and grace and good things and that uh, there's a plan. And so we praise your name this morning and we invite you to join us and speak to us and convict us and to change us, help our hearts to be open to your word. We love you, God, in your name. Amen. All right, so we are going to start here. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is the second half of the first verse we're going to talk about. Um, and I want to start here because there's always, um, in the world in which we live, um, 
a way that we talk about the spiritual realm. We talk about the divine. We talk about, um, it's, it's perfectly, in most places, it's perfectly acceptable to talk about um, the divine presence of God. Uh, it's, it's perfectly acceptable to talk about how um, we are creatures who naturally are searching for meaning in everything. We, we look at history and we look for meaning. We look at um, the world around us, um, the natural laws that are there. We look for meaning. We look at the human body and we can see that there is this DNA, which is basically this recipe for you and me. Like you could pull some of my blood out and you would find a recipe for how to build a Tommy. Like that's, that's, I think it's awesome. Um, and so there seems to be this order and this purpose and this meaning and this mind behind it. And so when we talk about God, we usually talk about beauty and love and these things that give our life a lot of, of goodness and meaning and joy. Um, however, it is a lot less acceptable to talk about some other force, some other personal mind that is pushing for the opposite, that is evil, that wants bad things to enter into the story, who wants to deconstruct everything that God is constructing. Um, and the problem is that we could actually look around at all the things, we look at all these things in nature and, and the way we live and the emotions that we have as, well, that's a sign of God. Um, but rarely do we look at the difficult things in the world and the suffering. And rarely do we look at that as an evidence of evil. Normally, we try to take it and apply it back to the God argument. And people use evil and say, well, there must not be a God because of these things. And so it all centers around a divine presence. And so rarely is there ever actually this discussion about, um, what about the personification of evil? What about... Um, what we see around us that is obviously not good and, and, and that there, there is obviously some um, cohesive attempts at pulling this all apart. And there are actually in scriptures 28 different names that are used to describe this idea of evil and the personification of evil. Personification as in a thinking mind that is working against goodness. Um, 28 different names. Each name is, is completely different. Um, and all of the, some of these names have backstories. And some of these names have um, different places where they were meant to dwell. Um, and uh, each one is sort of culturally anchored. But there is this agreement that there is something there. There is this spiritual darkness that is at work. And there's all kinds of names. Uh, there's Satan. The one in this passage is the devil. There's Apollyon. There's Beelzebub. There's Belial. There's uh, the dragon, the beast, Lucifer, the prince of Tyrus, the son of perdition, the tempter, um, the accuser. The list goes on and on and on and on. And there is this agreement that there is something there. Um, and any conversation about spiritual warfare needs to include a conversation about what Peter here calls the devil, what another author calls Lucifer, what another author calls something completely different. Um, and there's this affirmation of what it is. And, and all through scriptures, they all, they all name it. They all say, here's where it is, here's where it is. I grew up in a tradition where um, we applied what's called systematic theology to everything, where everything was 
tried to be figured out and put in sort of easy to understand mathematical equations. And um, you were trying to name exactly. So you would take all the names of, of the evil one and you would put them all together and say, well, this tells us he's this, he's this, he's this, he's this. And the point of doing this was to try our absolute best to define exactly what it is, exactly how it works, and exactly how it began and exactly how it ends. And this is how we like, as modern people, to look at everything as perfectly um, understandable. Um, N.T. Wright, in a recent interview, was asked about evil and the idea of the personification of evil and Satan, the devil, all of this stuff. And here's what he says. The desire to name the forces of evil may be the desire to think that we can, having named them, have a sense that, well, now we know who they are. We've got them in our sights. It's something called Satan who does this, 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 and this. Now we know. Keep a watch out for that. Then before you know it, it's something else that is nameless and scary is happening. That is, in my experience, how evil works. What he's saying is, oftentimes our attempts to just nail it down and explain exactly what it is, is an attempt to control it. To say, here's what it looks like. Here's the color it is. Here's the, uh, it's got horns, it's got a pitchfork. Um, or, or however you want to describe it, that was Dante's description of it. But we want to describe it, we want to lay it all out in easy mathematical equations so that we can then identify it as over there, not here. Throughout history, um, especially modern history, there is this, always this description of evil, and it is always over there. The propaganda war posters from World War II have... The enemy is the Nazis. The enemy is the Japanese. Now it's the enemy is ISIS. The enemy is this and that. And we want to say and name what it is. Um, it's this religion. It's this people group. It's this ideology. It's, we want to name what it is so as to keep it far from us. Um, and once we name what it is, we know what to look for. And we can look at it and say, well, I'm not that. That's what it is. I'm not that. I'm not evil. And then before we realize it, we wake up and we find that we are wrapped up in evil things. I guarantee you, the vast majority of us, if we were raised in the same society as the Nazis, would have ended up being part of it. And we don't like to admit that because we want to name evil and say it's over there. It's in here. It's real. Sometimes in scriptures with the names that are used, um, sometimes it's described as a personal force as a mind, a being, who is there, actively waging war against spiritual good. Um, a few of the names are different. They, they describe an indwelling, something inside of us. Um, and the rest kind of describe it as something on the outside vying for control. Sometimes it gets a hold of government powers. Sometimes it gets a hold of individuals, this lone wolf kind of thing. Sometimes it gets a hold of entire communities, and then you end up with um, sort of... Um, Bosnia, Rwanda. It gets a hold, it can get a hold of small groups of people. Whatever it is, we can be assured it's very real. And we can be assured that the writers of scriptures, um, 1800 years of writing and a minimum of, of 40 different authors, um, at least 40 different authors. And all of them, the thing that they all agree on is that it's real and it's very hard to nail down. And it's active, and it can turn a really good, righteous king who followed Yahweh from birth into someone who um, looks lustily at a woman, commits adultery with her, and murders her husband. Like that. That it's a very real thing. It's like a lion. 
walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Um, And so let's look at what Peter says is sort of the answer to all this. The first part of the verse actually starts it, be sober-minded and be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded, be watchful. I have talked about the idea and and the words used in sober-minded ad nauseum, like over the last few weeks, uh, uh, last few months, I've just... I've gone over and over, but if you want to more into the idea of being sober-minded, um, go back and listen to the podcast. Boom. Um, it basically, all of this is talking about the idea of being self-controlled, staying awake, staying aware, keeping your eyes focused, not letting outside things take, um, influence your mind. Not being influenced, but being present and aware and alive. Um, it's the exact opposite of being preoccupied, which so many of us are throughout our day preoccupied. <clears throat> there is a thing in, uh, in neuroscience called direct mental force. It's a description of what happens to sort of our brain when we um, really decide to focus on something. And direct mental force is a very powerful thing. Um, I'll start by saying, I can never find anything ever. And my wife knows this. And my worst fear is that she will ask me to go get something out of her purse. I will never find it. And it will end up upside down all over the floor. And I'll be spreading things out, looking for the thing. I can't find things. Um, and I, I've come to realize that a lot of times it's because I, I picture an image of, of, in my head of what the thing looks like. And it doesn't really look like that thing. And so I'll think like I'm looking, going to the fridge. I'm looking for a bottle of some condiment. And I, in my brain, well, the label's blue. And so I direct mental force is your brain's ability to, when you are looking for something that is blue, for, for instance will basically delete everything that is not blue from your vision. Anything that is orange or red or yellow or green, any other color, you won't see it. You're only looking for things that are blue. Um, And it's the ability that you have to get down on your hands and knees and look for a contact lens in a bunch of leaves. You know what you're looking for. You know the shape of it. And so you can actually find it. Um, Do people even wear contacts anymore? I don't know. Um, It's the ability that your brain has when you drop a, um, a bolt on your driveway and there's pebbles and rocks and leaves and acorns and there's a bolt there somewhere and you form instantly your brain says well it's this long and it's shaped like this and it has this many sides um, on the top of it and it's this color and so you look at the ground and your mind eliminates everything that is not those things and you can find the bolt it's a very powerful thing that our brains can do it's a very real thing Um, in in actuality, it's actually a lot easier to find a needle in a haystack than you actually have heard. Especially, tests have shown, if you see that needle first and then it is put in the the haystack, then you have an accurate image of exactly what it looks like and you can find it in there relatively easily because it is different than everything else. Now, um, in, you probably have seen this back in, uh, 2000, is it 2007 or 2009? There was this, the Washington Post did this experiment with uh, this um, violinist named Joshua Bell, uh, who was one of the musical geniuses of our time. When he was a child, when he was six years old, his parents found him once in his room. He had tied rubber bands to his crib and then tied them to his dresser to different drawers and had opened them to different lengths so as to tune the rubber bands, and he was playing songs on the rubber bands. Um, just a genius. And... Um, so he now is one of the most sought-after violinists in the world. People pay thousands and thousands of dollars to see this man play. 
Um, and so they wanted to do a social experiment. So they brought this man to the subway, and, they, and they, they brought him down to the subway to play some songs, and they assumed it would draw this crowd. He's over here on the left. They assumed it would draw this crowd that would be huge, um, and they would need extra security. But when he started playing, um, they asked him, you're going to play the six greatest songs that you know how to play, um, the most beautiful songs in your repertoire. Okay. Starts playing, tunes up. His violin is a, is a 1713 Stradivarius worth millions of dollars, um, or as guitarists call it, he's playing a Strat. Um, and he starts playing, and nobody stops. Nobody notices. We're going to work. We're trying to make money to buy the things that, are the, that will make our life good, that are beautiful, that are the most joyous things in life. And while we do this, we are walking right by the things that are actually the finest things in existence is a well-played classical song by a trained professional. So over a thousand people or so passed by in the six songs that he played. Near the very end, one lady does stop and she watches for a little while. Um, And after he ends, she walks up to him and says, I saw you play last week um, at the Library of Congress and it was fantastic. So the only reason she even stopped is because she recognized him and she had paid a bunch of money to see him earlier. Nobody else did. Now, what's going on here is direct mental force. We are focused on something we want to do, and we don't notice anything else going on around us. Now, Peter says, if we want to stay holy and pure, we have to be sober and, and watchful. Now, um, oftentimes, the things that we actually should see we don't. We don't see them at all. It is, uh, it's when your child has been crying for five minutes, sitting right next to you, and you didn't even notice. This actually happens. Single people, when the baby is screaming at the restaurant, sitting next to the parents, they probably don't even hear it. <laughs> there comes a point where you're just like, oh, you're crying. Oh, what's wrong? How long is it? And everyone's looking at you like, how long has he been crying? I had no idea. Um, it's when you're you're maybe with your loved one and they're talking to you and you didn't notice they were talking to you even and they end a sentence and it kind of ends uh, like up, like they ask you a question and you're like, oh, they were asking, I wasn't listening. They asked me a question. What did they say? What did they say? Uh, and you just try to pick a random piece. You play back the, and you try to remember what they said. Um, <clears throat> direct mental force is a very powerful thing that can block out a lot of things. I've yelled my, name, my son's name 12 times, gradually getting closer and closer to him as I say his name and he's heard nothing until I'm... Re- Hey, um, doesn't hear me. Focused on things, it blocks everything else out. Now, there are times in your life where you will wake up and realize you have been drinking more than you should. More and more and more and more. There are times when you will um, realize that you've been lying more and telling these stories more and more than you than you really ever intended to, um, when you have been lusting more regularly and, and your lust habit has actually turned into this physical thing, um, and, and it's, it's, it's taking, you know, it's taking root in things like pornography, and, and now you actually are finding yourself maybe flirting in real life with people, and you have more, uh, sort of, um, bravery to do that than you ever would before. And you kind of see, you wake up and you're like, this is heading somewhere bad. Or maybe it's too late. And you woke up having already broken the vows that you made to somebody. Um, There are times when 
you wake up and you realize that you are just so bitter towards someone and you never meant to be and they're a good person and you just talk bad about them all the time more and more and more until you find yourself just bitter towards them. And you never saw yourself getting to this point. Um, oftentimes, the things that we should see, we do not see because we are so focused in looking for what we would call evil. It looks like this, and it's the devil, and it, it looks exactly like this, and this is how it works, and so I can name it. That's evil, that's evil, that's evil. And then we wake up one day and realize that we are just riddled with evil. The things that we have done. Oftentimes... The best tactic of the enemy is to get you to nail down exactly who they are and exactly how they work so that they can surprise you. Um, this is how evil works. Now, um, so the thing that Peter tells us we should do is he says, be sober, be watchful. The idea here is sort of vigilance. It's when when the president looks at you and says, just be vigil. Um, He's saying, keep your eyes open, be watchful, be mindful. Um, so there is this, um, this way that the ancient sort of uh, monastic writers talked about the human mind and about how to carry it throughout the day. There's um, a lot of authors wrote about it. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, Brother Lawrence. There's a modern book called Perfect Presence by Gregory Boyd, that if, you want, if you're more interested in this, you should read that. Um, and it basically, it describes our minds like this. It is this road. And um, you would call it, I guess, your stream of thought, if you will. And there is part, uh, the, part of the, 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 part of spiritual formation is, is learning to meditate on the Word of God. And part, I know a lot of times today Christians are really worried about the idea of meditation. They say it's Eastern meditation, it's evil, it's bad. Um, the, the ancient Christians spent regular time in prayer. The ancient Israelites spent regular time in repetition and prayer and, and proclaiming to themselves the things about God that they believed um, because it became sort of this habit. Have you ever noticed when you're first pulling out of a, of a, of a garage, the first time you ever do it in a car, you're very careful and you don't want to hit anything and you're looking over your shoulder and you're just going real slow and you pull out and you pull away. Um, two months later, you just, you're on the phone, you're like, and you just go. What happened? You made it, you formed what's called a habit loop. Um, your brain is like a computer. It always wants to be forming habits. It always wants to be putting things on autopilot. And so what happened was for two months, every single day, um, for 30 seconds, you pulled out of the driveway um, and pulled away. And you did this every single day for, for 30 seconds for about two weeks. And your brain got so used to doing this that it formed this habit loop where you could do this while you're on the phone, while you're talking to somebody, or when you're just completely distracted. Your brain naturally reverts to a shortcut, to a habit of a trained thing that it's already done. This is exactly what prayer and meditation is on scriptures is supposed to do. You dwell on the things of God. You set your mind on things that are above. You spend regular time pondering the things of God. Now, oftentimes, um, these ancient writers describe our minds like this stream of thought, where a thought, that would be the beetle bug there, enters in to our mind, and you are to, what would scriptures say, take every thought captive. You look at it and you say, well, is this a healthy thought? Is this a bitter thought? Is this gossip? Is this lust? Is this racist? Is this demeaning in some way? Is this pride? And you look at this thought and you ponder this thought. 
And you decide whether or not this is really a thing that, if you are led by the Spirit, that you are going to entertain. And if not, you send it on its way. You let it pass right by. If it is, if it is something that is good and beneficial and helpful and loving and graceful and exchanges the currency that God exchanges with us, then you take it captive and you hold on to it and you ponder that and you dwell on that. And as you learn regularly, set aside time to do this, to listen to God and you spend time in prayer and, and you ask God, help me to be much more conscious and aware and mindful of, of what I'm doing. Don't let me be on just this brain autopilot all day and living out the habits that I've formed. I want to, every thought that enters my mind, I want to take it captive and I want to look at it and say, well, this isn't healthy. This isn't healthy. I want to send it on its way. This is healthy. And you are resisting some thoughts and you are assisting other thoughts to enter into your brain. And as you do this, you are forming these habit loops that, that actually tune your brain to automatically resist things that it should not have and accept and, and dwell on things that it should have. There is, um, there is things that this, that this does to your mind that makes it much more healthy. It's, it's basically, it's to set your mind to look for the presence of God and the presence of evil. It's to be very mindful and aware and watchful of, of exactly the things that you're dwelling on and you're letting your mind dwell on. Um, it is basically, what this is, all of this, is claiming responsibility for your thoughts. There are times when people say things like, it was beyond my control. I couldn't resist. There are times when people will say things like, um, they did this, and the only reaction I could have was to respond this way. And you find yourself responding in a way that you would never respond with had you been clear-headed and had you been really living out the gospel. Um, for instance, you might say, um, you might be very tempted um, to engage in infidelity with somebody else. And you might say, well, I'm in love with them. I, I'm married, they're married, but I, it, the, the powers are just so strong and there's nothing I can do. Well, there actually is everything that you can do. You can, you can spend time once a week maybe with, um, with women who have, who have lost their husband's infidelity or husbands whose wives have walked out on them. And you can listen to their stories and feel their pain. You can uh, look into the eyes of children who have sat there and watched their parents pack a suitcase and walk out of the house and never to move back in again. You can spend time in prayer asking the Holy Spirit to remove these desires and these thoughts from you. You can every single time these thoughts pop in your head say, that is not healthy, and push back on it and push it away. Exactly what Peter says here in verse 9. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Your current state of spiritual health is exactly what you have chosen it to be. You have far more control than you think you do. You have the Spirit of God who is working to sanctify you and who, if you ask, Lord, make me mindful of these destructive thought patterns in my life, he will. And you will start to see things that you never really wanted to see. You will start to see that there are things there you should have been resisting more and more and more. The enemy is very, very tricky. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. The key to resisting destructive ways in your life is to be awake, is to be sober-minded. Um, and it's sort of to ask the question, um, uh, if I were to set a, a trap for Tommy, a Tommy trap, what would that look like? Well, it would look like this. 
There would be some of this in there, and some of this would be thrown in. And if this all happened at the same time, that would probably cause me to fall and probably destroy me. And now that you're aware of what it is that would cause you to fall, you need to pray against that. You need to spend time pondering that. If you know what would make you fall, do you think it's possible the enemy might know? Oh, and what if there are things that you don't know that would make you fall? That's terrifying. We have to be sober-minded. We have to be watchful. And it starts small. There's um, uh, one of the most read books in, in all of Christianity is um, Thomas A. Kempis's uh, Imitation of Christ. And he has this quote. He has a chapter in this book. It's very short. It's on temptation. And he has, apparently he throws in this saying. He says, as it is said, apparently when he was a kid, there was this saying that would be thrown around, this little poem. We don't know who wrote it, where it came from, but he preserved it in his writing. And it goes like this. Check the beginnings once thou mightst have cured, but now tis past thy skill, too long hath it endured. Basically saying, um, you catch them when they're thoughts. You, you catch them when they're small, and you do away with them. Otherwise, they grow to a point where you really can no longer effectively battle against it without really drastic measures. And then he continues this conversation, and he says this, And so little by little the enemy entereth in altogether, because he was not resisted at the beginning. And the longer a man delayeth his resistance, the weaker he groweth, and the stronger groweth the enemy against him. Little by little, the monster is built inside of you. So little, so little tiny pieces at a time, you don't even notice. And so many of them are sneaking in, just little by little and little. And one day you wake up to realize, when I was a kid, I never pictured myself like this. But there you are. One of the most effective things you can really do is to, when you receive a thought, play that tape forward. We've talked about this before. If you ponder that and you let that grow and that turns into something else, what's that going to look like in your life? It could be good. It could be terrible. There's, um, so this, this idea of, of direct mental force, it's actually really... Um, fascinating because it, it can be very detrimental, but also it can actually, when taken and used in the proper way, can be used in incredible ways for very good things. Um, lately, a lot of research has shown that um, you can physically change and alter your brain um, through the thoughts that you have. There's this, uh, there's this book uh, called The Mind and the Brain by a man named Jason Schwartz. Um, he is a, and he's, He's really well known in, in what's called the field of, of neuroplasticity. Um, and in his book, he writes this. It's now clear that the attention of the state of the brain produces physical change in its structure and future functioning. Hold on, pause. Um, so what he basically just said is um, the attention, the, the things that you focus on with your brain, actually can change its physical structure, the, the way it even looks, um, so that it will function different in the future. And then he says this. The simple act of paying attention produces real and powerful physical changes to the brain. A century after the birth of quantum mechanics, it may be the last time to take seriously its most unsettling idea that the observer and the way he directs his attention are intrinsic and unavoidable parts of the reality. In other words, you become what you think about. The way that you think. If you are the kind of person who looks at everyone around you as sort of the enemy, 
you will find that they are. If you are the kind of person that looks at the world around you and sees creatures created in the image of God that God desperately loves and that you, um, through the power of God, are to show grace to, you will find that everyone around you looks to you like someone created in the image of God who you are here to show grace and love to. Um, the things that you dwell on, you become. So men, when you stumble upon a woman who is very beautiful and attractive and you don't want to be a person who is lustful, a person who um, lets that grow into pornography and eventually ruins his marriage one day, um, take time and be mindful and look at her eyes and engage with her mind purposely. And the more you do this, the more you will do this. And pretty soon you will find that you no longer really struggle with this lust thing anymore. You have prayed and asked God, hey, help me be mindful in these times. And the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear and says, hey, (laughs) eyes up here. (laughs) Right? And you will find that you are becoming this person that you want to be. If maybe you are the kind of person who struggles with gossip, if you are mindful of that gossip and you call it what it is, this thought enters your mind That is not a healthy thought. That's a negative thought. I'm not going to entertain this. I'm not going to engage in this. And you do this enough, you will find physical changes will actually happen in your brain where your automatic default will be, I'm not going to engage in that. That's not okay. There are tons of things in your life that you automatically would never engage in. And this can be one of those things. Um... This is a huge deal. This is something that the ancient Christians always did. They spent time sitting and thinking and pondering about the gospel and what it meant for them and the changes that could happen in the world. Paul writes at one point to this church um, in the city of Philippi in sort of this Roman colony, and there was a little church there, and it was actually, um, at first when he got there, it was this church, it was was all women in this church. Um, There was no men in the church. It was led by women. It was was, was a entire congregation of this, and he goes and finds them, and he nourishes them and sort of teaches them more and more about the gospel, and this church starts to grow, and... And he writes to them and he says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He says, um, it's exactly the things that I just described about, but he says it much more eloquently. All the things that are good and true and just and right, these are the things that we are supposed to take captive and use and dwell on and think about. And we will find over time that as we spend time in prayer and we exercise the spiritual disciplines of solitude and silence and talking to God um, and meditating on the word, meditating on scriptures, we will sort of create, uh, we would, would call it today, modern habit loops. In ancient times... They called it the God of peace being with you, which is what it is. You will become graceful, and you will find peace. And so there's not this big, heavy subject today um, that we're dealing with. We're not dealing with suffering. We're not dealing with anything. But, but we are dealing with our, all of our collective futures. We all want to be people who look back over our lives and say, um, I lived well, and I loved people, and I made a difference, and the world is better because I was here. But many of us will find, if we don't actually apply to spiritual disciplines at the end of our lives, we will look back and we will see, there are times in my life where I was a destructive force in the lives of so many people. And I no longer want to do this. 
And you can't go back and take those things back. But the good thing is Christianity is about resurrection. Maybe you're here today and, and, and you have found yourself, the lion has devoured you. You woke up and you look around and you say, oh my gosh, how did I get here? And the lion was very crafty. And little by little it entered in and you have been devoured. This is the good news about Christianity, it's, it's about the gospel, is that it's, it's all about resurrection. That three days dead in the grave, smelly, scary, no, that's, that's, it's too far gone. It can't be fixed. Well, that's not true. There is resurrection. It is the message of Jesus. It's the message that happens every single day in the lives of people all around you. The Spirit of God resurrects people, fixes parts of their lives that have been destroyed, and it is actually our future. Resurrection. Maybe you're here today and, and you have just found yourself to be just this negative person and you engage in a lot of gossip, a lot of negativity, and you're just, you lack this happiness that you see in other people. Their happiness, the people that you see, that's not an accident. Those are habits that they have formed over very long periods of time. And maybe at one point they were just like you where you are now. And so this is what the spiritual disciplines are all about. You need to spend regular daily time in prayer, in scripture reading, meditation, in, in community, in all of this. You need to take every thought captive. You need to start being present and aware. You need to start praying and asking God, send your spirit that when I am just in autopilot, that you will wake me up. There are things going on all around me that you are doing, and I want to take part in those things. There are things going on all around me that the enemy is trying to do, and I want to push back against those things. I want to assist some things and resist other things, but I'm just coasting. And so we're going to take communion. And so our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and prepare. We do this every single week. Um, communion is this repetitive thing. Uh, I grew up doing it once. Uh, actually, at, at first I went to a Baptist church, and we did it once a month. And then I went to a Grace Brethren church, and they did it once a year. Um, I think we should be done at least once a week, maybe more. Maybe every time we come together as Christians, we should break bread, take a sip of wine, and say, Hey, body broken for us. The blood spilled for all of us. This is the power of the gospel puts us all in the same boat and offers the same salvation and grace to all of us. And so our communion servers are going to spread around the room. And, and maybe today when we take communion, maybe you should talk to God and say, hey, where, where are the areas where I have just been on autopilot? I have just been exercising this direct mental force on one particular thing. Maybe I have spent so long trying to paint evil up like they're evil and I'm not, and I just need to be awakened to the evil inside of me so that I can purge it before it turns into something else, before it turns into this act that is demonstrably terrible. And so we're going to take some time, and, and we're going to take the body and the blood of Christ, and we're going to eat it, and we're going to take it down inside of us, and we're going to remember what Jesus did for us so that we could be whole again. So our communion servers, you guys can come on up. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you. For your son, Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice that, that he made on the cross when he took all of our sins upon himself. He bore our sins on his shoulders and he died a terrible, terrible death. And then three days later, when it was so far gone, you brought him back. 
And thank you for the message that is for us. That we can, little by little, begin to make strides. We can, little by little, um, let your spirit sanctify us and make us more and more like you every single day. Help us, Lord, to be present and mindful of our thoughts, to take every thought captive and to resist the thoughts of evil and to accept and ponder the thoughts of good. Let this become a habitual thing. Let us be people who naturally are just preset for grace. We love you, God. In your name, amen. Take some time and talk to Jesus.